All right, so uh, welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you here. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is John Chalcraft. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Government. I work on history and politics and labor and migration and social movements in the Middle East. Today, we are here to discuss the paper of uh, Professor Abdulhadi Khalaf, who we're very happy to welcome. It's one of the activities we do in this research network. It's called Social Movements and Popular Mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. It's spont kindly funded and sponsored by the Middle East Center and the Government Department at LSE. We, we, we have a seminar series with a number of meetings um, every year. This is one of them. We, we, have, we aim for quality rather than quantity. I think we have four or five uh, meetings uh, this year. So this is one of those. We've, uh, most of us have, have had an opportunity to read the paper that's been circulated in advance. So the idea of the seminar is it's quite interactive. You get to, we'll get to discuss, not simply to pose questions. And we also aim to give the professor a run for his money in terms of trying to you know, push and understand and take forward and, uh, the arguments. And we hope also the seminar will result in a, in a published paper that will then be uh, in, uh, circulate. So we'll have 10 to 15 minutes of presentation from the professor, then I'll speak for about 10 minutes by way of uh, being a discussant and trying to connect the paper to some of the themes of the series. Then the discussion from the floor, if you'd be kind enough to silence your phones and um, and 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 uh, I'd like to say what a pleasure it is to have um, Professor Abdelhadi uh, Khalaf here. He's a, a professor of sociology at Lund University in Sweden. He's a scholar. He's also a politician. He's worked on labor and state building and political participation. He's done very uh, serious and detailed work, especially on uh, the, the, some of the things I've seen about um, uh, grappling with power relations, transformation, reproduction, and trying to situate as well activism in that context. Uh, and one notable recent edited volume that is a 2015 publication called Transit States that Abdelhadi Khalaf has co-edited with Adam Hania and uh, Omar Shahabi, um, which is uh, also, uh, you know, very well worth having a look. So if you would like to tweet about this event, then you can use hashtag LSE Khalaf. And, um, you know, I'm responsible for, for timekeeping. But with that, let's uh, give the professor uh, a welcome to LSE. Thank you, John, for this uh, kind uh, presentation. Uh, thank you for coming. When I received the invitation, it was uh, rather late, uh, but when I received it, I, uh, I was uh, enticed, attracted by the uh, offer that I use it, I use this seminar, I use writing this paper as a trial, as a, a trial of uh, particular theme, particular ideas that I have on the Bahraini uprising. And this was really uh, exciting because uh, what I have written 
uh, in the paper are exactly this, uh, trial ideas. Uh, <coughs> I was looking, I was not interested in uh, writing about the Intifada as such. There are now in, uh, several books, uh, m most uh, recent one is uh, a book by uh, Shihabi and Jones uh, on the Bahraini uprising. It is worth reading. It is worth uh, looking into. It is edited the volume. What I was looking uh, in more interested in is why did the uprising happen? Why did it happen in Bahrain? In spite of all what we know about the golden bargain, about the rentier state uh, capacities, all what we know about uh, the uh, capacity of the state, repressive, repressive capacity of the state. And in spite of what we know that in, the, in October, November 2010, the opposition in Bahrain has scored uh, massive victory, uh, massive electoral uh, victory, and uh, the uh, main uh, mainstream opposition force, that is Arwifar, w uh, uh, managed to build the largest blo block in the parliament, 18 uh, MPs among the uh, within the uh, among the 40 members of parliament. The reason reasons to look for is unlike uh, unlike that in Egypt uh, unlike that, uh, those in, uh, in Tunisia or for that matter Libya and Syria and Yemen there is uh, there were a slogan that is repeated by uh, tourist industry in Bahrain uh, al-Bahrain ghair Bahrain is different that is to say, we are different than, say, Kuwait. We, are, we offer something else. And this was used by politicians of all sorts in Bahrain after the Tunisian and Egyptian uprising, al-Bahrain Ghair. Bahrain is different. It's, it can, one cannot compare it, people said, uh, with Tunisia or to uh, Egypt. We are different. And there are several reasons for uh, for. Uh, for that, of course, the basic uh, dif uh, one basic difference is that in Bahrain, all relevant political actors were in agreement that uh, the situation is good enough. Opposition, mainstream opposition, and the regime, the royal family, were in uh, general agreement, at least in uh, November 2010, that the situation was satisfactory and can be uh, can, uh, they both can live up uh, live uh, with it the both uh, the regime and the mainstream opposition forces i uh, suggest uh, have missed uh, missed those currents that develop under uh, under the surf, uh, the surface currents that can uh, that have uh, that have proved to be very uh, important to, uh, for the eruption of the uprising on uh, 14th February and for the, uh, the uh, trajectory it took and for its ability to survive even after uh, the Saudi incursion in uh, March 2011. 
the uh, two uh, two important uh, factors, two important political uh, political actors should have been neglected by the regime and uh, by uh, the oppos- mainstream opposition, and of course by uh, most of us, most of us, including myself. Namely, the first in uh, those what uh, what can be grouped uh, as radical flanks, those marginalized veterans of the uh, of the anti-regime struggle, those veterans of the democratic struggles from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and particularly veterans of the 1992-1999 Intifada in Bahrain. It's a long. Uh, intifada that that was <coughs> that ha- raised the slogan of uh, rebuilding the uh, constitutional uh, country, a country that uh, offers equal uh, citizenship rights to all its uh, citizens. These veterans were uh, some of these veterans were marginalized, pushed uh, pushed aside. Uh, it, it, uh, during the years 2001 and to, uh, up to 2010. These, uh, the neglect was because they have uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, veterans protested, they objected to the type of uh, agreement, type of uh, uh, cooperation between opposition forces, main opposition, mainstream opposition forces and the regime. They uh, they objected also to the uh, to the general acceptance of the uh, uh, mistakes or what I call plen- uh, the the blunders of the uh, king blunders that have uh, in 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 uh, that have accumulated to uh, to to make the country uh, to uh, make the country and. Uh, undemocratic uh, to make the country uh, uh, very authoritarian and to uh, bring the country back to what it was in uh, in the 90s and in many cases even further to the 50s when we were under British uh, protection and uh, British uh, administrative administration. The second uh, uh, political actor that was neglected are what I also call, uh, borrowing from literature on uh, social movement, are the contingent accelerators. These are the young, uh, young activists who, uh, who, who lack the credibility, who lack the credential, credential of being veterans or have the uh, following among uh, following uh, social following or political following, but they are uh, they are uh, activists. They are ready to uh, to work. They are savvy with uh, with uh, social uh, media, and they are also well connected with their peers outside Bahrain, particularly in Tunisia, in Egypt, and elsewhere. The, uh, two, uh, the, these two political actors were neglected, and many thought that uh, many thought that they were uh, they were uh, uh, their activities were doomed to failure. They might 
they might uh, initiate an action, they might uh, initiate uh, some activity, but their, uh, theirs will be doomed. They will probably take a, a, an hour or two hours or probably a, a couple of days, but uh, the, they will end in failure. The, uh, the, uh, the idea is not uh, taken out of uh, nowhere. Uh, we have a history of failed movement collective actions in Bahrain uh, come and go and they uh, usually uh, survive for a few hours, sometimes for few days, even for weeks. But the, in the end, the regime, the ruling family, the king, manages to, uh, to mobilize enough, uh, p uh, social, enough repression and enough uh, support from the uh, from Bahrain's notables to bring down uh, bring uh, the country back uh, to calm and uh, to for, uh, to uh, enforce order. It has been repeated. Uh, we we have cycles of uh, long term uh, uh, long uh, periods of. Uh, of uprising that goes back to 1950s, 1954, 1956, 1965, 1972, and then we have the 1980-81, then we have the, uh, the longest one, 1992-1999. to 1999. So the prediction that this, again in 2001, would, uh, 2011 will fail was not uh, uh, what was unrealistic is that the, in, uh, the regime and mainstream opposition did not see what was more or less written on the walls. It was uh, literally written on the walls because these young activists, together uh, 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 on their own and the radic uh, radical flanks on their own, were actually uh, proposing that uh, the day of rage will be launched on the 14th of February. And many, uh, many of them, I talked uh, to, to, uh, to some, I talked to some even before, and they, their uh, calculation was that even if it is uh, for a few hours, even if it, uh, we are only uh, 10 or half, uh, or a few dozens, it, we, we are going to discredit the political process that has been launched by the uh, regime and was uh, uh, in cooperation with mainstream uh, opposition. Now, I am using the two, 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 uh, at least one ambiguous, uh, ambiguous the definition of radical flank. I, within social movement, the radical flank is very understudied. We have uh, very uh, few uh, studies that focus on them. I had the pleasure last uh, last week to speak with one of the experts, preparing myself for this, uh, with one of the experts uh, on uh, radical flanks. Uh, she is uh, Donatella della Porta, and we, we have very few studies that exist except on the leftists in Europe or the uh, civil rights in the United States. But there, there must be 
uh, so many examples, so many varied examples to, to see uh, the, how radi radical flags in social movement uh, influence uh, social movements' trajectory, uh, 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 social movements' life, and even its uh, the level of participation and its future. Uh, look at uh, the uh, if we look back into say the Palestinian uh, in first Intifada of uh, '86, then we have uh, we have Hamas as an example of the radical flank that uh, that has been not studies as such. Uh, now, there is a problem with the radical flank. Is what was what is radical in the radical? And um, here I have, of course, uh, a problem uh, in Bahrain, as uh, like uh, like others have in their uh, case studies. Radical uh, radical flank can be uh, can be anything, like uh, like uh, God save us, God saves us from being radicalized now. Uh, because radicalized is getting so uh, dirty word. Uh, but in this case, in this case, radical flank might be, also we have to look at radical flank, those uh, groups, those uh, actors that go beyond mainstream actors, either in their slogans or in their, uh, in their, uh, in their uh, strategies. It is not necessarily that they are extreme. Radical here is not uh, synonymous with being extreme. So the uh, the but framing radic radical flanks or framing radicalism as being uh, extreme is a, a fault, is a mistake that we social scientists we social scientists do uh, without uh, without thinking while uh, regimes and security forces do uh, deliberately. We should avoid that. But if in Bahrain, at least, the, the radical flanks that I'm talking about are uh, radical in the, in, in the, uh, because the situation has po uh, moved, the political process has moved mainstream opposition from be um, being moderate to being very uh, conservative. Let me stop here. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so that's uh, very interesting and provocative. And, and of course, this paper does contain within it this... I mean, it is an unusual and, and, and provocative thesis because what you've said is that, I mean, uh, by... Um, saying that Bahrain is different, this is not part of a, uh, a wider cycle of contention, but something new, the declaration of the end of a paradigm of rentierism. Um, that's quite a provocative thesis in the context of the way readings of the Arab uprisings have gone since 2011, because there's often uh, kind of different sorts of backpedalings from earlier assessments that stress novelty, innovation, dramatic surprise. But you're, you're here telling us that, you know, far from wanting to 
put the Bahraini uprising back in some perspective and make it seem less significant, which is the direction that a number of people have gone in with regard to uprisings in other countries, you're saying somehow it's something dramatically new in terms of signaling the end of, or signaling the, uh, the bankruptcy of a certain kind of rentierism. So that is, that's, that's provocative. Uh, I, I, I definitely would like to know what the, in more detail to sort of specify how and why that is the case. Uh, I, I mean, I wonder about whether drawing on Saudi and UAE military intervention to crush the uprising, is that a break with the pre-existing paradigm? I mean, perhaps in terms of troop movements, but in terms of, I mean, protection seeking in some way, going, I mean, the, the British and others, the support of external powers... Uh, never seems that far away from the model of rentierism, so I, w I wonder about that. Um, I found tremendously suggestive and interesting this this notion of the king's follies, which I understood to mean that uh, King Hamad and others uh, high up in the political establishment have failed to implement the at least some of the potential or promises of that uh, hung around 2000 and 2002 and instead they've repeatedly rode back on the existence of meaningful representative institutions and uh, and that's a, that's, that's a suggestive thesis. I, I assume you mean that uh, it, does it mean that these are only follies insofar as I mean that this this kind of politics of of uh, hollowed out promised but not delivered liberal or hybrid democracy or a failure over democracy is it is the argument that this this could work if rentier politics was working uh, in the sense of redistribution and provisionism it could be matched to a kind of truncated but failed liberal democracy but now that uh, this rentierism is no longer working uh, these failures to uh, lead into deeper forms of liberal democracy are thus folly in this sense they're blunders um, because they will end up provoking more radical forms of, of mobilization uh, I wondered if I if I understood that right, but it's interesting to me this notion of the folly or the blunder because it seems to imply, you know, there's not some inherent strategic logic to what the ruling family are doing. There are alternate paths that are open to them, but they haven't done them, and that's a blunder because had they done them, there might have been some way to continue to reform to not end up with unresolved uprisings and unresolved crises. And I suppose that idea of radicalism, I like the fact you mentioned that we shouldn't cheapen it by thinking in terms of, you know, the ways in which Homeland Security think of it, but instead, I mean, the, the idea often had this notion of going to the root of the matter. If the radicals are those who uh, go to, they understand that there is a fundamental problem 
with truncated democracy plus failed rentierism and that there's a fundamental problem that must be addressed then those are the radicals as it were I wonder if something of that sort I mean you know recalling the you know Marx's notion of what a radical was someone who would go to the root of the matter and understand the problem but um so maybe that has something to do with... I mean, yeah, radical flanks, as you say, quite understudied in, in, in the Middle East and North Africa. One thing I wanted to ask you about and is that, I mean, and this goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning, like Maha Abdurrahman came here and gave a paper in this series called In Praise of Organization. And it was part of a, 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 a rowing back on the initial excitement and promise of leaderless form of movements and, and you, your contingent accelerators are leaderless, they're decentralized, they're a bit diverse, they network, they cross borders, they use social media, they're, they and, and, and you uh, put some emphasis on their importance. Mahar Abdurrahman has given us a paper called In Praise of Organization which says look this was all very well for um, uh, Putting for for a form of for a capacity to degrade a form of authoritarian power, but what it was not good for was then rebuilding after the dictator had fallen and engaging in the the kinds of negotiations and politics that accompany new or incipient forms of, of liberal democracy. And we also had Joel Bynin here comparing Tunisia with Egypt and saying, well, in Tunisia you had these quite well-organized forces you know, from underneath the top leadership of the UGTT uh, downwards, the main trade union in Tunisia, which were able to act in an organized way to then really work to drive through... Uh, 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 to hold on to certain rights that were promised in the uprising in Tunisia, and then, and so, so it's refreshing and interesting to hear that, you know, leaderless movements are not yet being completely written off in this paper. Although it doesn't, you don't go into a huge amount of detail, but you do suggest that they have this role as contingent accelerators, and that's interesting because maybe the context here is a little bit different because you have Wifar, the organised an opposition which wins electoral victories. It's quite different to what happens in Egypt in 2010, where the Muslim Brotherhood is shut out of the elections of 2010. And it has reasons, therefore, to take to the streets in early January 2011. Whereas in Bahrain, it seems, uh, from this paper, that Wifaq didn't have those reasons as an organized body that was enabled to it found a, a place in the state in one way or another. And then, and therefore, the sort of requirement for contingent accelerators and, and radical flanks who were veterans of older struggles. But it's interesting because uh, some people, again, going back to you're proposing a kind of a novelty for Bahrain because there's a tendency to think, well, Tunisia is the paradigm and others were sort of weak or deviant or failed echoes of the Tunisian experience. They took that model they tried it and then it went in all sorts of directions that weren't as fruitful, weren't as successful. Look what happened in Syria, it ended up in civil war. Look what happened in Egypt, there was one coup which, you know, uh, maybe opened some doors. Then there was another coup, a 3rd of July 2013, which, which led to the revamped security state and the annihilation of the liberal opposition and everything else. But you're saying, uh, that's interesting, that you, in your case, the Bahrain example, it's not a sort of pale echo of... 
the Tunisian paradigm. It's sort of something that announces something new on the Arabian Peninsula. And I suppose maybe that means that the exposure of the military, as it were, but from Saudi Arabia, the use of it exposes the violence that's now required to shore up a failing rentier bargain. So that that's sort of interesting. I wonder if that's what you mean. And I wonder if... Uh, if uh, if that that sort of interpretation could be could be sustained in some way, I mean, and of course, there's this thing that's striking about Bahrain is that following the repression, you don't have uh, a militarization. You know what happens to protest tactics actually after the repression? Because in Syria, you have people start to pick up arms. Other people say no, we, it's pointless trying to carry on with institutional disruption and occupations of squares. In Bahrain, do protest tactics have a different sort of pattern? What sort of uh, happens? And one other, one final thing, I'm glad that this paper pays attention in, a, in, a, in, I think, a sort of a historical and sociological way to, I mean, the antecedents to 2011 and especially that history in the 2000s. I mean, so much of social movements theory is very weak at specifying historical backgrounds, critical histories, especially this terrible nervousness around path dependency and, and you know, so I appreciated that, but I and, um, and, I, and I think, but I suppose it must involve all sorts of definitions of the political field, what's desirable, and again you said what's radical and radical, what's the, is there a political program, because this is another criticism of the, the, the you know, the horizontalist youth is that what is their substantive political program uh, what, what sort of Bahrain do activists want to see? And is it just, okay, uh, rentierism as is, but with, uh, you know, uh, better functioning liberal democratic institutions and, 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 and an end to this systematic discrimination against Shia and others? Uh, or what is the vision? What's the concrete vision? So that's another set of questions. So anyway, that's a, a set of questions and, and provocations, and, and, but also appreciations of this that's an interesting and, and, and provocative paper that you've given us to uh, get uh, to to look into. So thank you. But uh, perhaps if you'd like to, you're allowed to respond, uh, and then and then we can open up the floor. I, I, it is not a response, mm. a response to what you said. I I will try to clarify. I think why I choose I chose uh, royal follies is simply is simply because. Uh, Hamid in 2000, from 2000 to 2002, two years, he could do anything almost. He can ask uh, the opposition to sign on anything. Most of opposition groups would have accepted. In fact, they are, the Communist Party of Bahrain has uh, issued a uh, communique. It is the unity of the king's will with the people's will. There's the, uh, the, uh, the new constitution was, according to the uh, to this leftist organization, was a unity of the royal and uh, people's will. So the king had almost everything uh, uh, for him, uh, everything going for him in, in those two years. I think those uh, critical voices uh, were very few and far between, and they were. Uh, very isolated and uh, had uh, small um, uh, minor places that they can um, uh, minor followers or, or too. 
But he missed his chances. He missed his chances because he simply uh, thought that he will solve his what uh, uh, Samuel P. Huntington called uh, the king's dilemma. So how much reforms a, a king reformer can do without alienating his own people and how much reforms he can give without uh, risking, uh, risking that uh, uh, opposition will demand even more. This dilemma, the king tried to solve it by offering makrama. The makrama is a key, uh, the, uh, King Hamad has uh, alleviated this uh, concept of makrama to the disbursement of uh, gratuities in forms of uh, uh, money or uh, positions or titles to uh, polit political leaders so to uh, social not notables he alleviated it to an art you, you, uh, uh, one, uh, uh, he this the notable became uh, notables became an expanded and expanded but diluted social force in the country. This is one uh, one effect. The second, uh, the second, he has from uh, he he did not even uh, uh, consult any of the opposition groups that he that were ready to uh, to sign on anything he offers. So he did. He took the several steps, several steps that were unnecessary. He could have consulted uh, this and that but uh, he did not. The reason probably some, uh, some, uh, some uh, students of Bahrain uh, suggest that uh, there is, there is radical, radicals within his family. There are the uh, oligarchs, there is the, the, the uh, uh, oligarchs within the ruling family. I, I don't uh, follow that, I don't accept that, I see uh, no reason to to, 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 uh, to uh, to accept it. There is no uh, empirical evidence, there are no proof that there are uh, too, too many flanks within or factions within the family and they are, they, are, they are competing. The king simply thought that now he has the field leveled for himself and he didn't care about the rest of uh, the opposition. He humiliated the, uh, the mainstream opposition more than they, uh, they than, uh, than uh, they deserve because they were willing to sign on. The only one thing he, he uh, let go for the opposition, the, uh, the family, family law. When the Shia clerics protested against the family law, that is uh, in, in, in accordance with the Sidao agreement, he conceded that family law in Bahrain will apply only to the Sunni section. The Shias, Shias women will not be uh, subject to that law. This is, he still respects that. He did not, uh, this is the only uh, concessions he has given. And this is understandable for him. He, uh, he, uh, the ruling family since uh, 1869, according to my reading, to my, what I have written in my unfinished business, a book I written uh, to, in year 2000. The ruling family relies on cooperation of the clerical establishments, Sunni establishment and Shia establishment. Without, without this, uh, without consent, 
without cooperation from senior clerics from both uh, 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 sides, from Shia and Sunni, ruling family had trouble. So they do, the ruling family always do, uh, do that. A concession on women's rights were, uh, were part of those. But for the rest of the people, follies continue. The one of the uh, follies is the, uh, his inability to, uh, to, to uh, his inability to put to account the uh, torturers in his uh, in the security services, which I mentioned in uh, in, uh, in in the paper. Now the role of Makrama came to an end. We we uh, somehow. We, the, we, you, as a, as a student of, as an observer, you could have an inkling that rentier, rentier state is failing, or Makrama politics is uh, are failing, on the 13th, uh, 12, 12th and 13th of February, one two days before uh, the Intifada in February uh, in uh, 2011. The king announced that each family will be given. One thousand dinar, three hundred sixty dollars, eighty dollars. Each family, of course, it is good money. Um, you you will get it for uh, for doing nothing. Very few went to collect it. Then you knew that the uh, death was somewhere assigned. I'm not talking about Shia villagers here or Shia disgruntled uh, workers here. I'm talking about the majority of people. Sunni, Shiam, from the up north to the deep south, whatever, the Bahrain is too small, but it's still from all over the place, the, the, uh, the uh, people did not go to collect them. Hmm. So that was a, a small, uh, you could have an indication that something is wrong with that policy. Still he continued it. Now, you raise an important thing about leader, leaderlessness. Of course, I, am, I have been doing organization, I've been organized since I was 14. So I, <laughs> so I, have, uh, I have a problem with, uh, with the questioning organization. I don't. Mm. What the, the contingent accelerators were important because of their leaderlessness. Mm. No to central leadership. Networks had their uh, different leaders or uh, different side. But the, why the slogan no to central leadership? Because main opposition group have, uh, have framed politics that it should be centralized. Mm. Al-Wafaq should be. And it is not Al-Wafaq political leaders. It is Al-Wafaq religious mentor. That is uh, Sheikh Isa Qasim. Mm. Uh, the person was the leader. So the, the, this was a common cause between both the uh, young uh, accelerators, I call them, and the radical flanks. Radical flanks, say like Shemir, um, like Haq, or like uh, Wafa, or uh, others, would not have a room to, uh, to uh, maneuver, to act, if they accepted decentralized leadership. They have to question centralized leadership. And that was the uh, why leaderlessness was necessary, because then it allows the logic of it. It will allow for uh, innovative, uh, act, uh, innovative policies, measures, uh, and tactics, etc. Now, 
things that uh, the the uh, cooperation between the cooperation between these younger groups. Of course, uh, you know now you, you know any number of people you you talk to will say that they were active in in, in they were members of these young uh, activist groups. Of course, they cannot be all of them are members of that, but. Uh, because of being leaderless and because of Bahrain history, now I'm reading a book, of, uh, a new book, uh, a draft book, uh, somebody is written about 1950s, about a small organization. Each village more or less produced an Arab nationalist movement. So it's small uh, villages everywhere. And, and I thought I knew the details of that uh, type of policy of that period, but I was surprised of how many small networks. And this is what happened also pre-14 February 2011. There were so many networks that were ready. I did not take up uh, roles of some uh, important uh, people like, uh, say, Nabil Rajab, like the Bahrain Center of Human Rights, because they also uh, mobilized for 14th uh, uh, for the day of rage in 2011, but I didn't take them up because they didn't have that political, uh, they were doing it to mobilize, not to uh, within a program. Your last question, or your last question, which I uh, am not able to really answer, what are, what is the program? Of course, we have uh, we have the po political programs for <coughs> for uh, several organizations in Bahrain, but they are not that those type of programs that you will look uh, that you will uh, see what can what is the end game aside from the general meaning that constitutional country uh, equal uh, uh, equal citizenship etc but uh, how how that uh, those uh, uh, are operationalized uh, we have even the uh, slogan that uh, the everyone in in, in Bahrain uh, in the opposition accept that is uh, the creating a uh, civil state even uh, uh, religious, uh, uh, even clerics raise that, uh, but w what is the content of that, what is the substance of uh, civil uh, state, is, uh, varies according to speakers. Okay, terrific. So, the floor will now <coughs> open, so, uh, and there may be quite a few people wanting to speak, so we'll, we'll, we'll definitely, I'll take uh, quite a, a series of interventions, I think, if that's agreeable. And, uh, and if you speak up, because this is being recorded, so we would like to, to, you know, speak loud and clear, and also maybe say who you are and your institutional affiliation, and, um, and um, so the floor is open. Could I kick off, my name is Tom Thompson, and ask about the leaderless uh, uprising. Is there any role for Iran in this? Is there any influence for Iran? Because Iran hasn't really been mentioned in this. Can you enlarge on that, please? Okay, maybe we'll, we'll take a few, but that's okay. So, thank you. <coughs> yes. Differently to that, um, in comparison to the first uprising, and, um, 
in terms of security, in terms of responses to, to what the protesters are asking. So I just want to show you the points of that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Sure, I'm Haifa, thank you very much. Just a question about how just say you Oh sorry, my name is Said Shihabi, I'm from Bahrain also. Mm. Uh, the role the out, the role of the outside forces in addition to the Saudi and the uh, Emirati uh, intervention in mid March two thousand and eleven, how much did the British uh, act and support the regime to uh, suppress the uprising. Hmm. Very concise, the questions so far. <laughs> okay. Maybe we could still... Okay, let's... Let me, okay, let me, so the let me mix the... Regime reaction. Let me mix the two. I, uh, no, in, in, in social movement studies, the Political opportunities can be influenced uh, by external actors. Uh, political opportunities are not only uh, uh, internal uh, result of internal dynamics, but uh, uh, external uh, actors, external influences are uh, quite uh, important at, uh, at times. Uh, so, the what has happened in in uh, in Bahrain was that. Uh, Throughout, from 2000, from year 2000, from the uh, inception of the uh, royal uh, reforms until 2011, until 2000, and continued a bit uh, after that, British and American, uh, British and American, and uh, somehow also French embassies were actively engaged in convincing mainstream opposition that they uh, take control of your young and your uh, radicals, we will fix it. The king is true to his promises. And uh, as, it, as, it, as it were, the uh, main opposition groups, uh, particularly uh, Al-Wifaq, believed that, trusted the uh, British and the Americans and uh, the French uh, assurances. And uh, they, uh, there were many occasions that uh, the, the uh, rank and file of the opposition groups were uh, near revolt and they were, uh, <coughs> they were quietened by their leaders because some promises are there. Iran at the time uh, of the Iran has always been interested in Bahrain, which is uh, part of uh, part of our geography, part of our history. This is uh, uh, like uh, <coughs> as it is in in Saudi Arabia. But in the uh, during those at least uh, during those years, uh, the Ira after 2009, Iran was not interested in making trouble uh, to itself in Bahrain. Uh, the uh, Bisuni, for example, Bisuni report that the king has ordered, and it was written more or less for the king, uh, for the uh, uh, king's ears. Still, Bisuni uh, did not uh, said specifically, uh, we have not been offered any uh, evidence that of, Bah of Iranian role in the uprising. But that is specific. But. Later, the government said, yes, we didn't give him the evidence. Yeah. But, uh, but that is another thing. 
but the report is full uh, so many uh, many pages but this this is a, a exact uh, word were uh, there Iranian of course the Iran as uh, country uh, must have its uh, its interest in in uh, in uh, especially its in, uh, regional uh, interest vis-à-vis -vis, uh, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain is uh, uh, soft belly for both Saudi Arabia and uh, <coughs> and uh, Iran. Now, the British, unfortunately, the uh, British, uh, the British has uh, now uh, you, it is not uh, on the intifada or on uh, on appeasing appeasing main, main uh, placating main opposition groups, but the British have history of of a, a legacy of of uh, misbehavior British administration uh, misbehavior in Bahrain will go back to 1926 until now and uh, the uh, until now when they when they when they when you um, your minister, uh, minister, British minister in, in the parliament said, I don't know who, whose name is, but he said that we are assisting Bahrain in reforming its police force. I feel, I get frightened because the same poli British policeman was in charge of torturing me in the 70s. So, the, the, I mean, I, I get, if that type of assistance will be repeated, then we are in bad shape. But... Um, so has it been repeated? It should be. It, it, it is because now we have uh, our police, uh, the Bahraini police, is trained by uh, experts from all over the, uh, the world, but uh, Britain has a history, has a higher hand. I don't know the details. So. Mm -hmm. And might that play into your answer to the question from over there, how would the regime react to another uprising? <coughs> the regime would... The regime uh, has always reacted, uh, uh, reacted with the using to, to quote Michael Manns here both uh, capacities of the states, the infrastructural capacity and the repressive capacity. So he build uh, hospitals, build uh, roads, and disperse uh, macramas, or uh, bring more police. He did. Uh, uh, now the regime has uh, very advanced uh, um, uh, security forces now compared what uh, what it was in uh, in uh, 2011. No, I my my impression is that the the coming one is not uh, another episode like we have been seeing uh, we have experienced in the past. This is uh, the, what will uh, appear might be. A different one. I don't know how, but uh, I've written a book called Civil Resistance. Probably they learn something from it. <laughs> okay, thank you. <coughs> thank you, Professor, for what you have mentioned. Let me agree and disagree on some of what you said. I don't get whom you mean by radicals in Bahrain. Because whoever have expressed his opinion have not used any kind of threat by the mean of uh, tourism or anything at that, that front. So it's just an expression of an opinion, of an idea on how the political reform should take place in Bahrain. A real structural political reform. 
and at the other front, uh, the question is thinking to the future. What do you see the way forward in order for another way of political movement or movement by the citizens of Bahrain to be successful on changing uh, a meaningful change in the political structure? Easy uh, questions. Yeah. Uh, no, let me go straight. Take the easy answer. Yeah, I don't, I the last, so, the last question I cannot answer. I don't know how. I don't know how uh, the, uh, things will uh, will uh, evolve. But uh, no radical flag. Uh, radical. I don't mean radical uh, as extreme. Radical for for uh, for any regime is anyone that uh, uh, criticizes at least in in, uh, in our region anyone who criticizes the state or state authorities or persons will be considered radical and um, in in Bahrain the radicals that I uh, call I mention them I mentioned I mentioned Wafa as radical I mentioned uh, the as an organization I mentioned Hak as radical compared to the, uh, because now uh, we'll get into, uh, into definitions of radicals, but one thing, these, peop uh, these people are radical relative to the uh, extremely, extremely moderate, or as in, in Bahrain, those who are conciliatory, those who are critical. This is just a framing of how they have been positioned, but the reality they are not. All right. Uh, so somebody over here. I think <coughs> in Bahrain is defined. I mean, realistically, is defined to whoever is objecting 2002 and is not willing to play by the rules set up by 2002. That's what's radical in Bahrain. Mm -hmm. You don't need to hold anything in your hand as a weapon to be considered radical. Mm -hmm. On the other point, which you say, like if you just express your opinion peacefully, you don't actually. You Does it signal that the government is so desperate and this is like one tiny act of resistance against the people? Or is it like a, a start of a new treatment for the Shia majority? Mm. Okay. In your theory of the radical flag, there are two effects of the radical flag, right? The, the influence they have on the moderates and making them less moderate but also the influence on the regime and making it, uh, putting more pressure um, in, the, in any possible negotiation. And so balancing the needs of both because the moderates were getting closer to the regime and so on. What's the outcome being on the less extreme moderate? We see what now, their position, has it, have they been forced into um, a less compromising position, especially that we see um, the heads of Wafa, you know, I, you know, I don't want to be unfair to Wafa uh, in the sense that they seem to have stood their ground at least despite having wanted to kind of negotiate with the regime. So 
the head of Al Salman and senior leadership are now in prison. And people like Ibrahim Sharif, who are considered kind of moderate, are now in prison. So, you know, they, the radical flags have closed ranks of the opposition almost. And does that mean they have to actually succeed to some extent in at least holding that position firm vis a vis the state? All right. Okay, perhaps let's have one more before we go back. Uh, John Kaparin, Aga Khan University. Uh, thank you, Abdul Hadi. Really appreciated your account of what actually happened in the sociology of the various parts of the uprising. When you recount the retrospective, you recount the retrospective in terms of a failed institutional reform. Um, which in your narrative seems to have generated the, the kind of scenario that we see in 2011. And then you tell us that that kind of scenario has somehow changed. Now, I wonder if that also means that there's no room for constitutional accommodation in with this new scenario. It is one, you know, that this polarization, pulverization of the non-regime positions. Is it, can we think of a way of actually putting that back into a constitutional framework? Would that make any sense? Or is that com completely out of the question? Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. And, um, and just if, if as well you, you do, will you say whether 2002 and those who accepted the, the what was offered in 2002 compared to those who said no to it that is that very important as was implied from the floor I mean just as well to <coughs> yes um, no um, first uh, let me uh, address Muharram mm. uh, Muharram, uh, Muharram has been always since the 50s, I, at least in my memory, we, I, since I was young, Muharram was at a time where political organization challenged the regime. It was in the 50s, it was by the National Union, uh, by the uh, uh, National Union Committee, it was used slogans for Muharram, it was, uh, and it, even the Communist Party has used Muharram during the 50 until, from the uh, 55 until uh, 1963, using Muharram to, to raise a slogan. So the Muharram is a time where political organizations use the gathering to mobilize, to express their, uh, to express their uh, opinions, and to reach out to people, the the uh, rituals of putting signs of Muharram flags, etc., sometimes expands beyond the perimeters that were accepted by that are accepted by the regime. So they usually throughout the year, they usually push them back to the neighborhoods where uh, the matams or the, uh, the, uh, where the rituals are held. This has been the practice for decades. In recent years, there has been another element, especially the new element is with the Salafi introduction in the military and in the security forces. So the Salaf, uh, Salafists, or those who uh, come with the Saudi uh, religious education, these people uh, act beyond their mandate even. They push even further. So, the, uh, so part of it. 
part of it might be sanctioned by the regime because they want uh, to, to, uh, to uh, impose control, but also be, be owned by individual uh, officers and uh, soldiers. No, I don't see that uh, what happened the, during the last two years. I have seen it three years ago, no, six years ago when I was there. Uh, I saw that the uh, people tearing uh, banners for, uh, from uh, around streets near the Catholic Church, etc. But uh, nothing serious happened because they, at the time still the leaders of Matams have this arrangement with the uh, interior uh, ministry to control situation. So the, uh, things don't up. But yes, there is of course, uh, you can expect that uh, neighborhoods that have matams without population, because in Manama at least, uh, the uh, part of the town has, is, uh, is empty. I mean, uh, locals, natives, Bahrainis don't live there. People have, been, have moved elsewhere. So they are, uh, they are uh, inhabited by uh, migrants or by uh, non-Muslims. So they probably can demand that uh, matams or processions or that be uh, be uh, forbidden. It is probably legal thing that they can process, and the government might uh, might exceed. We don't know that uh, how the government will react uh, to that. Uh, but let me let me note here that. The ruling family, this is something that many Bahrainis don't like, what I, what I say. The ruling family uses clerical, uh, Shia clerics. You have the uh, Shia turbans in every function than the, in the royal palace. Not every mullah or sheikh or uh, cleric, uh, Shia cleric is against the government. Indeed, they have a lot of them, a lot of them uh, uh, in their, uh, in their uh, uh, camp, in their side of the, uh, of the, uh, of the uh, society. So the, uh, to be sure, and uh, of course, the, uh, you have the notables, we have families, large, human, uh, large extended families yeah, who have never in their lives sent, uh, 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 sent one prisoner or one arrested person to the, uh, uh, in Bahrain. So the, uh, not all of Shia are against the governments. Not the government is not against all Shia. They are against those Shia who are opposed to the government. That's uh, now. Of course, uh, the the uh, situation might uh, the, the regime, the ruling family, is not happy <coughs> with the, with the forced with the forced uh, closeness between mainstream opposition and, uh, and radical flanks like uh, Wafa, Haq, etc. And they certainly um, were not happy with the, uh, with the uh, Wafaq MPs when they resigned. And they, this is why they even allowed them, allowed the process to extend. They, the uh, parliament did not accept the resignation of the Shia members of parliament or the Wufaq members of parliament 
until uh, months later. They let it go, the Saudis were in, and the, uh, uh, I think it was until May or April that they uh, finally accepted the resignation of half the, the members and then the rest of them. So the government, uh, the regime tries its best to get back the, what it lost, I mean, uh, with the Intifada, <coughs> mainly the, mainly the uh, Wolfhard, uh, if they can get them back. They have tried. There are, uh, from uh, 2012 until uh, last year, there were several attempts to uh, engage into dialogue with, with the uh, mainstream opposition. These dialogues, the dialogues or the, uh, were failed dialogues, it were, they were doomed from the start because they were asked, the regime was asking opposition groups uh, to come back to 2010. And coming back to 2010 is no, ch no, no, uh, no go for any opposition group. They will lose the credibility immediately. So they, uh, they, uh, I sometimes think that they, it is a lack of inventiveness by the regime or arrogance, because they are not offering uh, the moderate opposition any way out from this uh, situation they find them in. And this comes to uh, what, uh, my answer to Janakola uh, Loka about the constitution, yes, there, there should be, but, but we, here we go back to 2001. The king uh, actually proposed national action is to uh, build constitutional monarchy on, uh, on style of uh, reputed Western established democracies. He did not use he did not say Morocco, he did not say Jordan. It is we, uh, some of us, uh, the uh, uh, opposition who put in his mouth Jordan, uh, but he meant, he meant uh, England. He wanted the constitutional uh, democracy. He, that's what he said. So the, uh, the challenge was, was would, it's not that uh, making uh, uh, constitutional democracy, a uh, 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 state. Uh, the challenge is, would, would can he afford transforming his uh, members of his family into citizens? It's not uh, to make Abdul Hadi or uh, Allah or uh, Luka uh, citizens. It is to make Al Khalifa citizens. To that is the issue. We, without making, maybe without a state in which the ruling family is also citizens. We are, we, 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 there, uh, there, is, uh, there is a problem with uh, constitutionality. <coughs> and yes, I think there is a way out. There is, the way out is, uh, 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 I live in, uh, in Sweden, is, uh, I, live in, I, I pay for the, um, for the Republican Association in Sweden, but I still live in that uh, country. So it, uh, the problem is not with, uh, uh, with monarchy. The problem is what type of monarchy. The king cannot afford, simply cannot afford. In, uh, uh, I uh, feel sympathy for him in this matter. 
it is not only vested uh, uh, <coughs> interest within the fa ruling family. Now you, you, you know Bahrain very well. Uh, a, a member of the ruling family gets a salary from day one after his birth, her birth. They get salaries, they get privileges, and of course they, uh, they are assured of positions immediately after, uh, after they, they finished any school. So the, uh, the, these privileges can disappear immediately. It is not honor, it is not status, it is actual monetary, monetarized privilege, privileges. And this he, would, he, he cannot afford unless... Uh, can't afford to eliminate them. Those privileges. Yeah. Right. So the, the constitution that eliminates this will. Um, now, do we have that? No. I, I raise a slogan when I speak in Bahrain. I say, this regime cannot be reformed from within. Now, reforms can be imposed by, by revolt, by repeated rebellions, by uprisings, etc., or by uh, mentors of this regime, benefactors of this regime, including Britain and the United States and others, and Iran, of course, it, that they come together. They, this regime is a troublemaker. We have, you have to reform it yourself to, uh, in order that uh, you don't uh, rock the uh, Gulf board. The, uh, the uh, second problem that the uh, royal, ha the uh, king has is, uh, is of course the neighboring countries. You have Saudi Arabia. I mean, would they, they didn't accept 1973 meek parliament. We had very uh, limited uh, mandate. Still, they, in Saudi Arabia, did not accept, and they are doing their best to uh, undermine the uh, Kuwaiti parliament. So, the, would they accept also uh, stripping the royal family with that? Because this is, might be contagious. Stripping the Al Khalifa might be contagious to Saudi Arabia, might be contagious to uh, other uh, Al Zayed. Uh, can one say something against Al Zayed here? You can, you can say whatever you like. <laughs> okay. We welcome critical speech. <laughs> uh, uh, no, but uh, against all of these, uh, there is a problem. The problem is uh, uh, that we have to reform, I think, the one. Who, are, who sells the arms, who, who benefits from these regimes. The uh, Al-Khalifa privileges can survive as long as we are prepared to sell weapons to them. And we are dependent uh, on our, uh, our relations, uh, our commercial relations to them. Um, to me, it uh, seems this is uh, the main source of um, 
contentious nature of Bahrain rather than sectarian divide, which has been used and manipulated by uh, the regime. So how do you see this explanation? Okay. Should we say, take a few others? Sure, okay. um, well, I'm going to see if I'm because I know there are some who've already spoken who want to speak, but I was going to wait to if there's anyone else. Okay, well, maybe we'll just answer this one, mm. and we will come back to there's so a couple of people here. You raise an important uh, issue. This is on the one hand, the conquest al Fatih is a basis for the regime's legitimacy. The regime, the ruling family, sees itself as legitimate because of the conquest. And on the other hand, it is based for its illegitimacy because the population sees it as, as a conqueror. Now, you would you would uh, have thought that uh, the the narratives of conquest would have disappeared in order that the uh, r uh, the king rebuild the country, build a nation, or build. A now you know the the story, of course, uh, that they came from Zabara uh, in uh, on the coast of Qatar. The king's the king's inventive solution was. Actually, he said it. We all came from Zubar, Shia and Sunni, to Bahrain. So his solution was that Bahrain was empty, and we all came there. So he even rewritten that, but of course it was ridiculous because uh, uh, the story the story is well documented. The conquest is fascinating story because. It, it goes into details of, uh, of, of the social life. It, is not, it does not only dictate how the conqueror behaves. Sometimes you understand why they don't care about the environment, why, they, they, they have, uh, why this sheikh or that uh, did not think about the, the uh, gardens that were, uh, and they simply destroyed every green piece of land in the country to build palaces or to build roads. Ah, they are conquerors, they uh, like all conquerors, they are uh, not staying for long, etc. This type of mentality, and of course, it is the right. It was uh, 50 years ago that uh, any sheikh can come to a, a merchant and say, I want this, and he, uh, he takes it. 70, uh, 80 years uh, earlier, they can even take a, their woman. So the, the conquest is is there, the mentality among the con But unfortunately it is also, like Ibn Khaldun teaches, the conquered also are affected by the conquest. They also learn to obey. They also learn to uh, a pattern of behavior that seeks, uh, or, uh, seeks uh, uh, conflict avoidance. They so the, we have that, it, 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 it permeates everything in our society. So the, the change that these, uh, these contingent uh, accelerators did, ex exactly by being 
faceless and leaderless. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't shame them, and, and they, uh, in the same way that uh, we uh, uh, non-persons can be uh, shamed. Right. Okay. So uh, you wanted to come back, and then yourself. and then I will bring some, uh, some examples. Do you think seriously that the king has a real intention to bring Bahrain to a constitutional monarchy, serious steps that he's willing to take, considering the royal family, considering the region, and whatever? Because that one is not there beside the external factor that can influence his ability, then there is no mean in that form. What we have seen in action, the, the steps that have been taken by the regime is to reset the rules, not to, to 2010. It's even a way be before or pre 2001. The positive steps that have been taken, the king came in, they are revisiting it in a way to legitimize restricting the space that has been given to the people. So all of these are signals that there is no real intention to advance the reform that's been, that has been taken, if it has been taken. I right. don't disagree. Right. I don't disagree. You agree on the steps, but okay, the intention, okay, is there is a willingness? So do you see a hope that there, is, there might be a change on the willingness? Well, sociologists are very bad predictor of future. <laughs> we, are, we are very bad. No, we are very bad, but we have evidence from the past. We have evidence from the past that even, 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 uh, uh, even very uh, hard, uh, hard uh, conservatives can take po uh, steps that are liberal. The idea is survival. The regime survival, if regime survival requires reform, they will do it. So now the idea, the, the trick is for a, a, a political activist is how to push a regime to the brink of either this or that. If you give the regime alternatives, I will accept anything you give me, then you, the regime will not uh, give way. That's the point. Right, and um, over here. The naval, the British naval base, <coughs> does it indicate anything? Is it uh, return of the British uh, forcefully to the region? As the economists said, we are back uh, last December, uh, and as uh, the Foreign Secretary here said, that uh, we are now taking charge of the Middle East while. Uh, America is going to the south, uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And do you think there is at the moment under the surface, is there any British-Saudi competition? Of course, Iran also on the other side. But um, And then do you see an element linking 
or a threat linking the forces that have caused the collapse of the Arab Spring, or is each uh, country uh, has its own forces that brought its revolution down. I mean, do you see that, for example, Saudis, Emiratis have intervened in Bahrain, intervened in Yemen now, intervened in Egypt. Do you see this counter-revolution uh, in action? Okay. All right, and let's add a couple. Yeah. Badr, uh, the Um To what extent does the Wahhabi support um, of uh, Al-Khalifa in the early 1800s against the Al-Bin Said uh, of Oman reflect the Saudi support of Al-Khalifa against the Bahraini opposition in 2013? Okay. Right, so how about those three questions? Okay. We're keeping you working hard. Yes. <laughs> no, uh, and uh, changing hats. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, uh, no. The uh, the British, of course. The like, why did they leave sixty eight? Why why the uh, east of Suez uh, uh, has come up? It was simply because United States was coming up and was taking over. British Empire was falling down. It was uh, uh, getting bankrupted. And and while the uh, new, uh, new uh, boy in town in the United States was, was really uh, taking over. So it was understandable then. The, change of the changes that the, the British, uh, uh, British base that, uh, brought uh, to the scene now is that uh, Britain is still continuing to play its secondary role within the uh, American with the American uh, strategy. It is going to take more, uh, more active role uh, to uh, fill a vacuum that the American leave, but that will, but within the uh, American uh, American uh, overall strategy. I don't see uh, uh, the significance of that uh, now. Of course, they are the, the British, uh, Br uh, British uh, politicians have accepted what uh, Heath refused in '68. Uh, Edward Heath in '68 refused uh, that offers from Sheikh Zayed, from Khalifa bin Salman of Bahrain, uh, that uh, we will pay for you. Now the British, of course, in Bahrain they accepted that the uh, Bahraini king is building their base, is financing. So, uh, mm. so the, the, it tells you more about the decline of uh, of uh, mid uh, of Britain as uh, as a power. Then, and of course, if if it sends uh, <coughs> if. Uh, but it, it doesn't change the strategy. Bahrain is still small compared to the uh, compared to the region. It, Bahrain is used like it was used uh, uh, by by uh, in the past hundred years, used as a base for uh, to protect other interests in the Gulf and beyond. It is a tragic, of course, for us, for those who suffer from it, because uh, Britain, uh, British uh, officers, British politicians are much more involved in the local affairs than the Americans uh, have been. 
and they might uh, and they know the details and they they they, uh, they have uh, trained many of uh, many of uh, the officers many of the officers belong to the royal ruling family so their influences can be uh, can be uh, politically and financially can be uh, devastating they of course they can convince uh, uh, their uh, their cadets or those whom they trained in uh, in Britain that this particular uh, pistol is much better uh, although uh, if we uh, mold it in gold or in diamond etc but uh, they are better they will be better salesmen so we will lose but strategically we are in the same position we are in the uh, in the hand of the uh, United States which of course, now by the middle, the, the whole Gulf might lose its uh, strategic importance or that it has been uh, in the past because of the oil, because of the shale, because of uh, several other uh, factors that are coming. Uh, now to the Wahhabi. No, the, it is complicated uh, history and it, it needs it needs uh, uh, more consider considerate answer than I can give you now, but uh, I will let you uh, on. Um, I will let you on a story on uh, Sheikh Mohammed uh, bin Khalifa. He was a ruler in, 19 in 1854, and he had uh, he had uh, a, a castle fort with two uh, towers. On one tower was the Iranian flag. On the other tower was the Turkish flag. <laughs> uh, at the same time, of course, but the British did not like him. <laughs> so they destroyed that, uh, that, uh, that uh, fort and took the ruler, sent the ruler back to India and replaced him with his brother, Sheikh Ali. The story, uh, this, what I'm telling you from this story is that Bahrain has always been uh, contested, being attractive for rulers, what is, uh, if it is Busaid or uh, the uh, Iranians or the uh, Wahhabi or the uh, even uh, small tribes in Qatar. They are always. This is a prize for some reason. There is uh, the uh, some riches, some uh, strategic position, and uh, so the, it has been a time. The interesting thing when you look at uh, the uh, at Wahhabi-Bahraini relation is that since 1869, uh, when they uh, when the British brought Isa bin Ali, uh, the uh, predecessor of this king. Uh, to rule Bahrain, he was a young uh, man. But the condition, uh, the, the, uh, they were, the Al Khalifa were happy because the British now will fend, uh, will protect them from the Wahhabis. It is it the, and the role of Britain for the Al Khalifa was to push away the Wahhabis. The Wahhabis were the uh, the um, uh, fear that uh, Al Khalifa lived with all the time. And uh, these are uh, documented in the uh, stories, but, uh, but it took them 
it took it until 2001, the, this story, in spite of what, of what we know of good relations that has uh, occurred between, uh, with the Saudis. They have intervened in Bahrain in 72, they have sent uh, help in 75, they give the ruling, fa Saudis give the ruling family half of Abu Saif oil, 150,000 uh, barrels, it is good money, but still the fear was there, and continued until 2001. The king followed the tradition, King Hamad followed the tradition of his ancestors that I need a foreign protector against the uh, Wahhabis. So he went to Bush, George W. Bush. And they made a good friendship, and uh, Bahrain was considered uh, together with Israel, etc., a strategic uh, non-NATO ally of the United States. He went further and signed the first free trade agreement with, uh, with the United States. That was in, in, in direct opposition to the Saudi who wanted to negotiate free trade agreement with the United States as a collective, as a GCC. He broke the rank. Saudis were furious. They cut the oil. Those 150,000 were cut. The direct uh, money uh, subsidies that were, uh, were, uh, uh, were they sent to Bahrain, they were cut. Uh, even their teachers, uh, they, uh, the teachers sta teaching staff they sent to religious school also were cut. So the king re realized, was under real burden, he realized that the United States is not the best protector from Saudi, Saudis are uh, uh, getting stronger hand, at least as far as he is concerned. So the story is complicated, I, we need to talk a lot. You said you weren't going to give a considered answer to that question, but I think you did. <laughs> uh, but there was this question that went unanswered, the regional versus national dynamics in the Arab uprisings. Mm. Yes. No, well, the Arab uprising proved, uh, showed once again for all of us that uh, Arabs talk Arabic or speak Arabic. <laughs> so they learn from each other. The same slogan was, uh, uh, you heard it in, in, um, uh, in Tunis and you heard it in Sana'a. So the, the uh, Shab, you read the Spat al-Nidama, but different, uh, the different uh, uh, content of that uh, slogan. Uh, of course, and uh, you, you, uh, we were, we, we saw that how people influenced each other, learned from each other, and they, uh, the experiences were exchanged. I uh, saw the uh, the uh, ex-president of Tunis when, uh, uh, after the Mosul uh, Mazuki, before he became president, going out uh, after uh, to the Bahraini embassy and saying, "Down, down, Al Khalifa." Uh, then he, of course, uh, resigned that after uh, he became president. But the the point is that we had this link, and uh, for for me as a student of the Middle East, I, I was happy at least Fuad Ajami was wrong. That the end of Arabism is wrong. I mean, we had Arabism, we can, uh, but it is a different type of Arabism. 
Now, I tried here to, sh to show that the process, the way, the trajectory towards the uprising of February 2011 had, uh, had 10 years uh, span. It did not, it, 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 it took a lot of frustration, it took a lot uh, of uh, disappointment, it took, it took uh, a lot of uh, imprisonment, etc. But it has, it has its, own, uh, its own narrative, its own writers, its own uh, actors, its own uh, participants. But it had the same thing like Tunis, in the sense that people for different reasons became uh, discontent. People be, uh, for different reasons saw that the alternative to, uh, to uh, uprising is uh, stagnation and probably uh, death, literally. So the, there was the, they reached a point where uh, the, uh, they had nothing to lose. The, uh, I, uh, with, with the idea of when you push, when you push your people to that we, we have nothing to lose, then uh, you are real in, in real danger. And this is what happened in, in, uh, in Tunisia, in uh, Egypt, Syria, in, uh, and in Bahrain and in Yemen. People were pushed to the, uh, the brink and they have, uh, Unfortunately, with different uh, with different results, mm. with different results, and they, they with the, some of them are uh, continuing uh, continuing to be um, uh, very tragic. But let us let me uh, say uh, uh, let me say that uh, what we had in 2010 was horrible. We we had uh, at least when uh, in Bahrain we had uh, people who were who were feeling desperate and uh, they, they saw uh, that things were meaningless and they uh, and that uh, there is no uh, no way out now we we at least we some of them some of them know that there is a way out at least when you are hit you should shout uh, you should say uh, you should resist different type of resistance but you should not uh, Accept uh, to be subdued, which is the same. Which is same in Tunisia. Um, the military in Egypt is strong. The military in uh, the uh, military and the gangs uh, the, uh, in Syria are strong, but still people are uh, hoping for for a way out. That is different from what it was in 2010. Yeah. Uh, Emily, I'm from uh, QCL, Center of International Relations. Uh, my question is regarding uh, sectarianism as the strategy of the regime during the Arab Spring. Um, how successful was it in dividing the uh, supposedly united population and what are the prospects for um, a cross-sectarian uh, future uprising? Yeah, this is this is very uh, important question. It's, uh, I'm glad that you uh, used 
sectarian policies. I don't think the uh, Al-Khalifa regime, the king or uh, anyone, is sectarian by nature. They, it is sectarian because it serves, uh, sectarianism serves purposes. And um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, many of, uh, many of the uh, strong allies of the uh, ruling family are Shias. And this goes up to 1783. The, the uh, sheikhs who exploited Shia lands or uh, were not directly involved. They were always using a Shia uh, wazir, a Shia uh, middleman. So the, it is a history. Sectarianism has increased to a level that it became beneficial for any person. A person is for the poor of the poor. Uh, the poorest of the poor benefits now from secularism. The less of the other guy, the less other guy's uh, uh, teachers is good for me. I can get uh, promoted. The less of them in the sweeping, uh, the sweeping floors, then it is better for me. It, is, it has become beneficial for everyone. So the uh, it is. We, I don't want to to uh, uh, to demean the the process, but it goes back to the American sociologist who studied the white trash. The white trash in the United States hated the blacks much more than uh, any other white. The white trash, it saw their benefits in suppressing, uh, in suppression of the Negroes, of the, uh, of the uh, black population. The more they are suppressed, it is uh, the better for the white trash. Uh, sectarianism is now uh, runs deep, but it is not only responsibility, let me say, uh, responsibility of the regime. The main opposition groups have also acted in, 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 in a sectarian way. Uh, let me take, uh, I mentioned the 2010 election. The uh, 2010 election, uh, the uh, Lufab had its Shia list. In Shia and uh, it uh, can, uh, candidates only in Shia uh, districts. So, and uh, of course they had uh, the possibility, the chance, the, the, at least the possibility, uh, the chance to uh, put forward some uh, Sunni in, their, in these districts and they could, uh, uh, these uh, would, would have uh, been elected. No, they didn't. The regime has, on the, on it, on the other hand, the regime has uh, pushed uh, its military voters, um, uh, military and security voters, to uh, to vote for Sunni candidates. So from the, uh, you saw that uh, very clearly in 2010 election results. The situation is bad. Now, uh, let me give you how bad it is. The uh, NLF was a communist party. Uh, now it has a different name, it became a legal party. NLF is, the Communist Party is a split between Shia and Sunni. That's how bad it is. Now, now. the NLF. Yeah. Yeah. 
That is how bad it is. No, I mean they don't. They, they don't call themselves that way. But it is that's, this. That's mm. So we, we even like anecdotally, we, we can even sort of observe uh, like communist uh, Shia communist bars and Shia communist uh, um, as well, Sunni, Sunni communist bars in Bahrain as well, as you know, places where these Sunni and leftist communists get together and sort of have their own. No, but, the, the, but uh, I mean, let us not be a discussion on communism now. But uh, <laughs> the 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 idea is the idea is that the regime benefits from uh, when you as a student of social of uh, social development in Bahrain, you would have noticed that the uh, regime has always preferred to uh, maintain. Uh, vertical uh, segmentation of society. These villages are like that, Shia are like that, uh, not all Shia together, the Shia of this village uh, uh, get uh, uh, segmented against the Shia of the next village. That was what they, uh, and they still do that. Within the, within the uh, sectarian narrative, please note, that this can uh, the even the uh, segmentation continue <coughs> even within that. So the uh, <coughs> Shia villages can be segmented vertically, supporters of the regime and supporters of those who get the makramas, those who don't. Uh, same with the Sunni villages, same with the Sunni districts. So the uh, it is not quiet. It is it is only seven hundred fifty thousand. The whole country, probably with the with it is one and point three, including the foreigners. But it is very complicated because you have uh, uh, with the segmentation you have any type of you probably have red hair Shia, black haired Shia, something like that. The, the, how segmentation is taking place is fascinating, and wh when you have rent to finance segmentation. Mm. Then you put the, you put the patron over uh, uh, any segment, and then uh, through the uh, patron you disper uh, disperse your uh, makramas. Yeah. The future, I don't see it coming. The, the uh, to to bridge the gap, bridge the gap between <coughs> the sectarian gap requires requires a lot of. Uh, inventive uh, politics from the opposition. Inventive in that sense that uh, in the sense that it might even endanger the cohesion of the opposition because that will go against among established uh, established traditions, established uh, histories. Can I can I push you a bit then? on uh, again the explanation for the uprising in early 2011 because as you said there was a, a major opposition party that was accepting the status quo and had won an election victory they're formidable means of repression at the hands of the state there is uh, a long-standing usage of different kinds of makrama uh, and um, sectarianism. Then you have the rents business and I, I mean I was struck by a, a conference on Algeria that I went to where it became clear 
that you know you have all these socio-economic protests that went on in Algeria through 2011. They never became political in the sense of saying we call for the fall of the regime. There was a sort of, um, uh, I mean, different offerings. That there was an anthropologist at this conference who said the Algerians were simply, you know, we had our Arab uprising. It happened in 91 too. It ended in a horrible civil war, and uh, we. Uh, but but if we protest on socio-economic issues, we get some kind of provision. But it became clear also the extent of rentier provision in Algeria. So, and, but, but in that case, it, according to these uh, findings and papers, it, it, op it worked. So it is very striking, as you say, that there's something malfunctioning in, in the rentier provision in Bahrain. I mean, uh, I mean, in view of the long history of how, um, of how it has operated. But, um, so, but the explanation, as I understand it then, in, in the face of this, the the, the inability of the, the ruling bloc to engage in meaningful reform then feeds into a situation where radical flanks and contingent accelerators can generate a situation where there's a real uprising, it brings together the diverse sectors of the population. Um, I mean, is, is there an explanatory gap somewhere? I mean, in the case of Algeria, what's, what was striking was that their, 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 the history of activism had, was read as having gone into a dead end in 92. I mean, Bahrain is striking for its history of activism, uh, which is not just pessimist. maybe it's a bit more optimistic. I mean, they have had organizations, they have had continuous politicized forms, you know, through the 50s and the 70s, again, all through the 90s. Is there something in that history of, of organization and protest? Uh, that, that is because Bahrain is distinctive. Uh, I mean, it has a mass uprising in 2011. Uh, only Egypt, Tunisia, uh, you know, a kind of, I mean, you know, Yemen, Libya, Syria, but uh, but also Bahrain. Again, one of the only rentiers to have such an uprising. So, it, have you fully explained all of that? No, no, no. I, uh, I simply, uh, simply is not uh, easy to do that. But let me try now when I uh, have a few minutes. Now, what is the difference between uh, the ruling clique in uh, Algeria and uh, the uh, ruling family in uh, Bahrain? The difference is that in Bahrain the uh, demography is different. Mm. The ruling family expands something like 3% per year. Hmm. I mean, natural. Uh, right. And uh, their health is quite uh, good. They survive. So they, the numbers is in the increase. The resources are uh, limited. You still, whatever you do, the whatever you do, you st uh, the the Bahrain is how much whatever the you get from Saudi Arabia, uh, they they get the oil and the uh, oil produced in Bahrain or refined in Bahrain. They get some what I call uh, strategic rent because whenever they have security trouble, it's uh, United Arab Emirates and a few uh, 
hundred millions, Kuwait sends a few tens of millions. This, when uh, sometimes uh, the opposition serves the regime by uh, by providing it with arguments for begging more support from the neighbors. Mm. Now, <coughs> this is one main difference. The second uh, main difference is that uh, the um, military in Algeria invest their rent in businesses. While our ruling family is conspicuous consumption, mm. is a consumer, is a spender. Mm. They, they buy uh, flats here or uh, castles there, but they don't own factories like the Algerian uh, junta, military junta. So this is, these are uh, two, uh, two important differences, like the, the demography and the type of investment. The, and of course the uh, limited uh, resources. The land grab has provided the ruling family with something in Bahrain to increase the, uh, the uh, resources, the financial resources. But um, as it appears that they, the money accrued from land grab and from uh, security rent has, is consumed by the ruling family most of the time and in uh, recent uh, year now, we have uh, the, the debates is uh, for uh, uh, taxing the uh, citizens, putting, uh, um, uh, imposing uh, new taxes, charges, uh, taking, uh, uh, eliminating subsidies. We have, they have already started with subsidies on uh, basic stuffs, meat, uh, rice, and the oil, uh, gas, and uh, and oil will be will uh, will come soon. Uh, the they are imposing taxes, taxes now, uh, charges on uh, basic services that were free uh, of charge before. Uh, so the. Rentier as such now is uh, the, uh, even government uh, spokespersons speak about the end of rentiers. That is, uh, and this is something uh, something in you. But uh, mind you, it is not because of lack of resources. It is because resources are spent within the ruling family. Something the British were better at. The British, when they uh, when they administer Bahrain, they impose this rule. One third of the income goes to the ruling family. One one third of the income goes to reserve uh, funds, and one third goes to services. After independence, we didn't see that uh, that the, the uh, that line uh, that line disappeared. When King Hamad came, he eliminated the royal expenses from the budget. Now we don't know, no one knows how much is budgeted for the, uh, how much is spent by the military, by the security and or by the royal palace. Is out of it. So the, uh, how much of that uh, uh, is, uh, that's uh, my answer to uh, comparing a big country like Algeria with a small country yes. in Bahrain. Yes. Okay, well, super. Well, you know, I think that was a treat. And oh, I, I think we'll have to carry on outside because we, we're sort of out of time.
um, uh, but but yes, and um, but um, so yes, I mean it's not often you get someone with such a great knowledge of the country and combined with a historical and sociological view, and in the study of protest, which is often done in a, in a too sort of shallow and a historical and a sociological way. So I thought that was a treat. I'm, it's I'm delighted to see so many people here, and uh, I hope you found it uh, a rich discussion. Can I just mention there's another, there's a, another lecture in the Middle East Centre um, tomorrow at 6pm. Dina Espandiari of King's College London will discuss who makes foreign policy decisions in Iran and Iran's regional policy. Um, I'd also like to mention the next meeting of this seminar series is coming up next uh, term and it's going to be Hamad Shukri speaking about Tunisia and uh, uh, he's based in, in France. Uh, so look out for that um, next uh, term. And please, if you want to join the mailing list, which also gets a digest every two weeks uh, on everything to do with social movements and popular mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa, events, publications, panels, opportunities, and so on, please send me an email and I will put you on the list. Um, oh, and there's uh, Abdul Hadi Khalaf has a uh, contribution in an edited volume which is outside on sale and it's terrific it's called Bahrain's Uprising it's edited by Ale Shahabi who's sitting over there and uh, also Mark Owen Jones and it's on sale uh, at a discounted price uh, outside 14 pounds so you save four quid if you buy it from us uh, this afternoon is that right Sandra yeah so you know, that's not rentier or patronage politics, that's just sort of discounts and things. But, uh, so thank you very much for coming, and above all, thank you very much to the speaker.